This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. Looks like it's going to be kind of a short one, but I never like to miss these, so let's jump in and see what we got. First up, Instant Gratification Monkey said they just picked up a SCAR cable for their mister, and it's awesome, but they found that a lot of arcade games that they want to play are vertically oriented. Is it okay to rotate their 21-inch consumer CRT on its side to play those games? So my thoughts on that are mostly just support and balance. Um, There's a few other things to worry about, but the best way to describe it is something like a PVM is generally a square box. So when you put it on its side, it's just as sturdy as when you lay it on its normal orientation. So you don't have to worry about that. Whereas a lot of the consumer grade TVs I have, if you put it on its side, they'll like flop backwards onto their plastic. And most importantly, onto the part of the plastic casing that is not designed to support any pressure. So the number one thing when rotating a TV is making sure that you're putting the pressure on the spots that could take it. So some people have built braces for this, some people have gotten pretty creative, or some people have just put it on its side and then just very carefully balanced it just to make sure that it's only putting pressure on the side with the support around it, not on the kind of empty plastic, especially that's around the neck and, you know, all of the stuff back there. Because that is a big issue if you put too much pressure on it and it you know, pushes the plastic in and then starts touching all of the components, you could easily break a TV that way. And I guess even Pat, uh, Pat Gravier, the BVM tech, warned against this for shipping PVMs, because while the sides of the PVMs are pretty sturdy, the back plastic can push in and smash the neckboard. So that's just something to visualize. I'm being a little bit overly cautious in my description, just just to try to help you visualize where to put it and how to balance it. But As long as it's not going to roll off your table or roll back onto the plastic and smush it in, you should be good. The only other things to note are just shine a flashlight into the vent holes of your CRT and try to get an idea of where the boards are. Most of them that I've worked on have one board at the bottom, so if you sit it, you know, normally oriented, and if you turn it on either side, the board is vertical with really nothing kind of blocking them. I have seen professional grade monitors have boards on the side though. So if that was the case, I would just try to make sure that those boards were on were vertical, you know, so when you rotate it uh, on that side most of the time. Because a lot of these Mr. Cores have the ability to flip the screen and it's actually built into the BIOS of a lot of these motherboards from the original arcade boards. So let's say you flip it on its right and because the, uh, you know, you have a power board or something on its left side and Anytime you have a game that's oriented to the left, just go into the BIOS and, you know, right in the Mr. Settings and try to flip it to try to keep it oriented that way as much as you can so all the heat could rise out that way. Now, it's my strong opinion that if you flip it back over and you have it braced properly on a desk, there should still be enough airflow in there to take care of that. And I really wouldn't worry about it in most cases. You know, you might want to double check. There might be certain models that have issues with this. 
but it's just kind of good practice. And luckily, 21-inch consumer CRTs aren't super heavy, so you should be able to flip it around. They're not as easy as a 14-inch, but much easier than a 20-inch PVM or BVM, which are way heavier than a consumer-grade TV. The only other thing you mentioned... As you said, according to the internet, it could give issues with colors because of the Earth's magnetization. It sounds like Keyboard Warriors kind of got that one backwards. Um, you could take a CRT and calibrate it perfectly right here. And then you could pick up that CRT and walk it across your room and put it here. And some colors might be off and you might need to degauss it or something like that. It's not so much the orientation of the tube. It's where, where it is and, you know how much it's been moved around. And a really good example of that is when I sold my Mortal Kombat machine a couple of years ago, which I'm still bummed that I did that, by the way, but um, I it arrived at the person's house and they emailed me very politely and just said, hey, you know, I wonder if this thing got damaged in shipping because there's a purple tint on the screen. And at first I freaked out because I was like, no, 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 here's all the videos I took of it beforehand. It was in mint condition. I, I, you know, let's get this worked out, but I swear I didn't intentionally send you something like this. And then we found out that going from the east coast of the U.S. all the way to the northwest coast of the U.S., it's on a different part of the uh, of the planet, so you have a different magnetization of it. So in order to get rid of it, uh, you would use a degaussing wand, and I guess rotate it every couple of hours just so it could kind of you know move the interference around, if you will. It's probably a bad explanation, but rotating it around the room a couple times did it, and after a few days, everything was perfectly fine. And I guess this would happen in arcades too when things were getting shipped. So that's probably what you were hearing when you heard these things talked about or reading when you read these things and it's easy to confuse this stuff too so i'm not i'm certainly not going to shame anybody for getting it wrong but i did want to clarify it now maybe there's some crazy use cases on specific models or specific types that when you do that you would have a color issue but generally speaking i, I really wouldn't worry about any of this i would flip it on its side and just make sure it doesn't roll off the table or something like that or, or crush the plastic. So that probably didn't require a five-minute answer, but I just wanted to be a little bit thorough in that for anybody else listening to this, just so you'll know what to expect. And I hopefully covered all the use cases for any of the, the one-off gutches where what I said wouldn't apply. Two questions from Andrew Jennings. First, has the part shortage affected capacitors? They're planning on recapping and RGB modding a CRT from their childhood and was wondering about that before proceeding. Uh, so yeah, it, the part shortage is affecting everything, but there's a two-step process to recapping your CRT. The first is to safely discharge and open it. I know I got to say that every time just because I don't want anybody to get hurt, but properly discharge your CRT to make sure that there's no chance of injury. And then you take it apart and you create a capacitor list. And regardless of the part shortage, you're still going to have to do that. So I would go through, I would make a list of every single cap on every pad and, uh, you know, one of the tricks I like to use is I take a Sharpie, like a, a bright blue Sharpie or something, and I mark off the top of each cap. And that way I know that I've written it down so I know what it is. And also when I go to replace them, I know that anything with a blue mark on it is the original and anything without is a new one that I've already replaced. So take the time to do that. It's going to take forever and it's so boring, but you have to do that. And then take that capacitor list, go online, and try to figure out which cap is a good replacement. You have to have the exact same capacitance, but you could have equal to or greater than the voltage, and that's 
always safe. I see misinformation about it all the time, uh, and it kind of drives me nuts. If you have a capacitor that's rated at 12 volts, and you replace it with one that's rated at 16, 20, 50, a million, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Size will be a difference. Make sure there's enough room, but uh, you don't have to worry about voltage as long as it's equal to or greater than, and that might be a help with the part shortage, because maybe a uh, 220 microfarad 12 volt cap is hard to find now, but a 16 volt version isn't. I'm just making that up. I have no idea. Uh, so I would do that anyway now, and then go through and make the list, check on these services, uh, on these different websites, and see. And if you find that it's impossible to get a handful of them, then just do the replacement at a different time. But at least you have the list done, and at least you could check the websites to see what's in stock and what's not. So uh, you know, it might be that you have to end up waiting a couple of months to do it, but at least you get the first part over with. And in my opinion, that's the far more boring part. And you could put it back together, uh, use it until the parts are in stock, and then discharge again and just do the cap replacement once they all come in. Second, do AV receivers cause input lag? Uh, maybe. So the only way to really know for sure is to use a time sleuth or some kind of lag testing device to double check. But generally, the ones that just switch inputs don't. And the ones that scale could, but some of those even have a game mode where they pass it through without any processing. So it might add a few microseconds, but anything less than a millisecond is absolutely zero. Don't let anybody online teach you differently. Anything that's less than a millisecond is zero. So any of these switches or anything like that that add, you know, one and a half microseconds, that's not lag. Um, it is easy to, to misunderstand and think microseconds or milliseconds. I've heard people confuse milliseconds and frames, but it's not. So it's not anything to worry about, but you should measure it for each one. Uh, so... You know, you also said you mentioned a Philips Hue sync box. I've never tested one of those, but I can't imagine those add lag because they don't buffer anything. So I would just double check if you're worried. If you have any concern, you could always play your favorite game and then plug the HDMI cable directly into your TV, skipping all of that, and see if you feel a difference. And, you know, if there is a lot of lag being added, you'll definitely know right away. And if not, maybe it's not enough for you to matter anyway, but... Good questions. Hopefully I pointed you in the right direction. MTTMCC wants to know how someone without any access to a Windows computer can update their RetroTank 5X Pro. So that's a good question because to update the RetroTank, you first have to install the drivers and then the software. So it might be an issue for people like yourself with an M1 Mac where Parallels isn't quite there yet ready for true app emulation for things even like the drivers. Um, it could be, it could not be, I'm honestly not sure. I have a MacBook that I use that has an Intel-based processor, so I don't ever run into this. Uh, but I would look into any kind of software that has a free trial that could do stuff like this. I'm pretty positive it's doable on the Intel-based Macs, but I don't know about the M1s. So I would try anything with a free trial to see if it's possible but you might be out of luck for the short term. The good news is, though, anybody with a Windows PC, regardless of how old, should be able to use this. So I think from Windows 7 on up, you don't have anything to worry about. You could just load those two pieces of software, and that's it. And it's all very quick. You would only be using somebody's computer for about five minutes. So 
If you had any friends with a Windows computer, that's the easiest thing to do. And you could even send them the links to download themselves so they don't you know, get nervous about you installing something on their PC. Other than that, um, you know, the only two other options were to be would be if someone were to create software specifically for Mac and Linux to do this. And we would really need a developer to donate their time to Mike because Mike doesn't, like he said in the live stream recently, he doesn't have time to kind of figure out how to do this himself. And that's not something that's, you know, that might cost a lot of money if you had a, a professional software firm write this. So it would have to be something most likely community donated. So if anybody out there is a software developer that can do things like write software drivers and write an application to access those drivers to do updating, um, that's one of those things that learning that skill from scratch is very hard. But if you already do it for a living, you might be able to whip up something, you know, in a couple of minutes that's a beta that you could just say, I'm not supporting this. Here it is. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, don't blame me and, and kind of send it to Mike and see. Um, but the only other option uh, is maybe send it to somebody. So if you don't know anybody who has a Windows computer uh, or anybody that you'd feel comfortable just asking, I mean, I wouldn't knock on my neighbor's door and be like, can I install software on your laptop? I swear it's not porn. <laughs> but I, I guess you could kind of ask around and see if, if there's anybody in the community near you you could ship it to to do the updating. I would like to see other solutions, though, because... Mike has a track record of pulling these updates out of nowhere and adding really crazy features. So while the latest one is so worth updating to, and even if you had to skip a couple afterwards because you don't have access to a Windows machine, I think it's worth it to do it this time, but having a more permanent solution would be better. So anybody out there in the community have the ability to write this that would be willing to work with Mike? Um, you know, existing experience, please, because once again, Mike doesn't have time to to kind of sit through all of this stuff. So hopefully it would be something doable. But at the moment, uh, I'm I'm really sorry, but generally, I, I just don't have a good answer for you. I just had that that long explanation. Jason Guffey had a couple of questions. First, they're liking the interviews and streams lately. Thank you very much. I love doing the interviews, and I really want to highlight more of the awesome creators in the retro gaming world, or, or just anybody that I think you might enjoy listening to. So if they get boring, let me know, but I don't want to slow down doing these because I just I think I have a great time doing them, and hopefully it gives people decent content if they read the description and think it's something related to them. Um, you know, I always kind of hope that people would read it and go, mm, I, maybe I'm interested in this. I'll give it a chance. Or like, no, I don't care at all. I don't want to buy one of those. That's totally fine. But, you know, hopefully people at least read the description of the podcast and say, you know, maybe this is for me, maybe it isn't. But anyway, on to your questions. Uh, last week, you talked about brightness modifications, but you wanted to clarify that the problem is the opposite. You have to keep your brightness level low because turning it up even to 20 or 30 out of 100 results in a slightly washed out image. Um, so I have this issue with one of my PVMs, actually more than one, where I like to play in a dim or dark room and it's too bright when I sit too close to it, so I turn it down. Because remember, we all used to be used to sticking a 20-inch TV in the corner of your room and sitting seven feet away on a couch, so you're used to looking at this little thing that needs to be bright. But now that we're probably all used to giant gaming monitors or giant TVs, we tend to sit closer to these older CRTs. So you're naturally going to want to turn the brightness down as you get closer to it. 
So if that's just what you're talking about, I think that's awesome because that means you could turn the brightness down and that tube probably has many, many years left of life in it. Uh, so that would be a good thing. The only thing I might be concerned about is if you think there's an issue with the CRT and that something's broken, causing it to be super bright. And that's when I would talk to somebody who knows how to repair them or who knows how to troubleshoot that exact model to see. But generally speaking, if you're just sitting close to a CRT and it's too bright, so you got to turn it down, that's a good thing. That just means that your tube's going to last a long time. And if it doesn't have burn in, it should be in pretty good shape for a while. Uh, next, HD Retrovision, the plug-to-plug uh, -plug cables always seem to be out of stock when they're looking for them. So check Castlemania first, just to support the community, and then check Amazon. And between both, sometimes one have stock and one doesn't, so just make sure to check both links. I guess I'll put links in the description to both for you. Um, but your actual question is, the plug-to-receptacle ones are usually more in stock. So can you just get some coupler, uh, couplers to to basically make it an RCA to RCA and then reuse the couplers at a different time? The answer is yes, but I've had weird experience with couplers. So I would treat this like I say those very cheap BNC connectors and that expect out of a bag of 10, at least one to be junk. So expect that you're going to have to buy a bag of them and possibly throw a couple of them out. And people usually get really upset when I say that. I still don't understand why. I'm not telling you to waste your money or waste parts. I'm, I'm just suggesting that maybe instead of buying something that's like four or five dollars each for a coupler, buy a bag of 10 for three dollars and then throw out the ones that, that aren't built correctly. Everybody kind of wins on that one. You're not really wasting anything, but I would suggest that and give it a try. It shouldn't hurt anything. Everything should be totally fine. You shouldn't have any signal degradation because it's such a, a short, you know, tiny little area, but you would notice right away. That's one of those things where like, if you plug it in and the, the, you know, you see checkerboard patterns all over your screen, then okay, the couplers are bad, but if you plug it in and it works, should be fine. So that is a totally good use for it. And you might always be able to use those couplers at a different time for a different project and they're super cheap. So I, I do think that's a good way around it. Just check both stores just in case. Um, lastly, they're starting to think about RGB mods for some of their consumer TVs, but they're having a rough time finding service manuals for them to plan out what they'd need. Is there a certain repository online I might know of somewhere, or maybe a certain brand or manufacturer where their manuals are better documented or easier to get a hold of? No to all of that, but I hope people do end up putting those on the wiki at some point. And I don't know what the, the legalities of hosting manuals are, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, uh, you know, I'll just, that's one of these, like, ask for forgiveness, not permission, because the bottom line is we're not profiting off of somebody else's intellectual property. We're archiving the stuff to make sure that these things can be serviced far past when the original manufacturer cared about them at all. So I could never imagine getting in trouble for that. But if I did, that's that can't be a, a big problem. So I'll deal with that when that time comes. But one thing that you could do is just search around all the normal places to see if anybody has any info on them. And you could always take the CRT apart and try to find the jungle chip and see if it's the same as on other TVs that do have mods. So you could basically just give it a try and try to see if, if you could find something that works. You know, obviously you got to be careful working on CRTs and you certainly don't want to kill anything, but 
after I did that interview with Thomas, to be honest, I think a lot of these, if he's able to finish that project, I think a lot of this work that we do now is is just going to be forgotten about. I think we might very well be approaching a time, you know, give him a year because it's a very complicated project, but we might be approaching a time where you could unplug the board from these older CRTs, throw it in a drawer somewhere just in case you need to steal a part off of it someday, but plug all of the stuff into Thomas's board and and that's it. Maybe cut a hole in the back of the, the CRT's plastic just so, to mount a different input and you're done. And I think something like that would probably be the better, the better way to do all of these. But for the short term, give it a try. If you short out the circuit board, you know, maybe that becomes a CRT you put in storage until the open source chassis is released. And if it works, cool. Now you have something to hold you off until that project is done. Oliver Clare wanted to follow up on the discussion from last week of outputting a Dreamcast to many different monitors. And it got kind of complicated in the question. So while I did read every word of it, I'm going to skim through just for respect of people's time listening. But basically, they're looking to take a Dreamcast and output it to a 4K flat panel, a mid-2000s Panasonic consumer-grade CRT, and a VGA PC CRT monitor. And they also have a little PVM that has BNC inputs, but they're not sure how that's going to factor in. So... They're looking to take the Behar Brothers Toro, which has dual VGA and RGB SCART outputs. And that would totally work. You could put the VGA output directly into the PC CRT monitor, and then you would take the RGB SCART output, which would be 480p over RGBS SCART. So it's basically going to be the same exact signal as the VGA, but sync combined so you could have it in a SCART cable. And they're going to put that through a G-SCART switch, which would allow dual output to an upscaler. So that takes care of the 4K flat panel. And then that's where the complicated part arises. While you could physically plug it into those other two TVs, what you would end up doing is sending TVs that don't accept 480p a 480p signal. So you're sending 31 kilohertz to monitors that are designed to use 15 kilohertz. So the only thing you could do to make that work would be to downscale 480p to 240p or 480i. So you would need a GBS control and Extron Super Emotia or a RetroTINK 5X to do that. And you know, the GBS control is always such a great tool to have. So for this experiment, it might be cool to give this a try. Um, and in fact, you might even be able to just use the VGA input. So all you would need is VGA out of your Dreamcast to a VGA matrix switch or, or just a multi-switch that allows you to have multiple powered outputs and you could send it to all of these different things. Or I guess you would, yeah, you would use the VGA from the Toro and you'd still use the SCART to go to a scaler or something like that. So you could do that and then VGA into the GBS control, downscale to 240p, and then you'd have to take the VGA out to a VGA to BNC cable. You would need a sync combiner, I believe. I think you might, I can't remember if you could force RGBS. I think you would need a sync combiner. And then you could put it into your PVM's BNC inputs. And then from there, you could use the BNC outputs of your PVM to go to a BNC to SCART cable to go into your consumer grade CRT, assuming that one has a SCART input as well. Sounds like it does. So the problem here, exactly like I said last week, is the resolution. You're outputting to devices that, two devices that accept 
480p and in the case of the pc vga yeah pc crt vga monitor that only would accept 480p and then you have two other monitors that won't accept that resolution so the only things that you could do is either downscale that signal or use 480i out of the dreamcast and use some kind of line doubling to go into the pc crt monitor um so this is all very confusing and uh you know, it's one. It would not be nearly as confusing if all of the resolutions were the same. But since Dreamcast offers that higher resolution, that's where the issue comes in. And if you do end up doing it the other way and keeping it in 15 kilohertz 480i and just scaling it to 480p for the CRT monitor, you'd actually need two scalers because you would want to scale as high as possible for your 4K TV. And then you would want to scale only to 480p for the, the CRT monitor. You might be able to go higher, but then there's a whole other factors that might that uh, that might get messed messed up when you're doing it. So some more individual questions about this. Do I think this is a reasonable plan and a reasonable layout? Sort of. Um, you know, the only thing that you could do is if, if you switch to DC digital is you could output, you could set it to 480i and have the DC digital uh, deinterlace to 480p or something like that. So you could use it, but you know, you could do it that way, but you're still going to run into the same problems of resolution mismatching. Um, second question with the visual quality of the Toro to the three, you know, to through the upscaler to the HDMI compare favorably with the box that outputs 480p directly to HDMI. Um, it would be better because if you're going to something like a FrameMeister or a RetroTINK 5X, you're scaling that 480p signal. Whereas if you just go directly into the Acura or Gecko, it's just digitizing it. So it's not a bad solution. It's just better. What you already have would be better. Um, would I be able to recommend a SCART cable to connect the Toro to the G-SCART switch? Any of the ones from retro gaming cables or retro access should be good. I did a review on that flat cable, but all of their shielded cables are great. Alternatively, if they wanted out to output the Toro to an upscaler using VGA cables, would standard VGA shielded cables off of Amazon suffice? Yes, check the links that I have in my uh, Amazon store. The one that I linked to there is great. I use it all the time and it is fully shielded and like $9 or something super cheap. Um, Next, would I be able to recommend any VGA switch boxes? I would absolutely look into Xtron stuff because that used to be thousands of dollars and now you could get them for usually under a hundred bucks. And I've never used one that, that wasn't broken, that wasn't awesome. So it either works perfectly or it's broken. There is no in-between usually. I haven't run into that, that situation with Xtron stuff. So... And they're all, all of the ones with multiple outputs, you could safely use all of that. So it would totally be feasible to do VGA into one of those and then have four different VGA outputs that you could just deal with as needed after that. Um, six, what would be my preferred upscaler for displaying 480p Dreamcast content from VGA to HDMI? My preferred upscaler at the moment would be the RetroTINK 5X with one of those HD15 discard adapters. Um, you could also use the open source scan converter and, and many others out there, the FrameMeister. But, uh, you know, if you're asking my preferred opinion, the RetroTINK 5X just has so many cool options now. That would be what I did, definitely. 
And uh, lastly, as the Toro does not output digital audio, does it really matter which RCA to 3.5 millimeter adapter they use, or would any standard one from Amazon work okay? Any shielded one will work okay. And it's the same problem with all cables labeled shielded. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So plug it in. If you don't hear a buzz, you're good. If you do hear a buzz, the only way you could tell if it's a really shield is, is to cut it open, which sucks because that is totally a waste. But if you buy it and it's buzzing and you cut it open and you find that it looks like a thick cable, but it's all foam and no shielding, that's your answer right there. So maybe you could return it after that. I, I doubt it. I think you'd have to throw it in the garbage, but that's the only way to tell. So normally I wouldn't go so deep into a question. No offense at all, Oliver. I don't, I don't mean anything bad about that, but there, we were light on questions this week, so I figured I would go through. But I have had a few people over the years message me and say, hey, I'm building a new setup. Can you answer these 75 questions and help me get everything up? And I, I usually have to politely decline. And if this was a packed week with 20 questions, I would have to do that as well. But you, you just lucked out this week, Oliver, and you know I had the time to do it. I hope nobody's offended by that. It's just, it is what it is. I have to be fair to everybody else who asks questions. And since this was a light week, couldn't think of a more perfect time to ask a bunch of questions like this. One more question from Oliver that's unrelated to the previous stuff. And the question is, with all of these scalers that are becoming available now and the stuff coming very soon, and some of the good ones that we've had for a while, do each have their own use case where one is better than the other? Is just one the king? Or or how do these factor into your setup? And my answer to that is a little complicated in that I think whatever you already own should be a huge factor in what you buy next, unless you're a nerd like me that just wants the newest stuff to play with. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as you have some extra bucks to spend and you don't mind doing it. Uh, but if you if you want to try to be you know, pretty, pretty efficient with your setup and use the stuff you already have, that's when it kind of comes into place. So I think things like the FrameMeister are still excellent for deinterlacing. So if you had an open source scan converter and a FrameMeister and you didn't want to sell either of them, I would use the FrameMeister for 480i and the OSSE for, for everything else. Um, if you have a RetroTINK 5X, I still might hold on to the OSSC for things like retro computers because Mike really focused the RetroTINK 5X on consoles, whereas the OSSC is just more of a basic line multiplier, so it should work with almost anything. And I, I run into that with my Virtual Boy. The Virtual Taps VGA output won't work with the Tink 5X, but works perfect with the OSSC. So, uh, you know, I will always keep the OSSC as a tool. I might not use it as my main scaler anymore, but it is always used for capture, um, you know, for testing. I mean, it is a worthy item to own. And just because new stuff came out doesn't bump that one off the list. You know, I just always would like to throw that in there. So, you know, same thing with the GBS control, right? If you had made one of those yourself and you love it and everything's great, you invested almost no money into it compared to how expensive all the other things are in retro gaming. And then if you went out and got a new RetroTINK 5X because you liked all the scan lines and all the crazy other options, now you have a GBS control that you could use for going into a PC VGA monitor. Uh, so that way, you know, it's everything stays analog and you don't have to worry about it, or you could use it as a dedicated downscaler. So the question, the final part of your question, do I think it makes a particularly compelling case for having multiple different scalers in the same overall setup? Yeah, totally depending on your setup. 
if you had a G-Scart switch with eight consoles plugged into a RetroTINK 5X, probably not. No, there's probably no reason for you to swap any of that out and use multiple. But all of the use cases that I just suggested, especially if you're going to multiple displays, would absolutely be something you could use this for. And if you're a streamer, Definitely, because you never know when you're going to run into a weird use case where your capture card, the game that you're playing, whatever else is not working right with your setup. So in that case, I would say keep everything you have and just kind of only sell it if you really need the cash, but always have these tools in your toolbox available to you. So, you know, I always try to be respectful of people's budgets and stuff like that. So, you know, if you don't know if you're going to use it anymore and you could use some cash, sell off your old stuff, keep the new stuff, you know, don't worry about it. But, you know, if you have the ability to hold on to them, you might always find a weird use case for some of these things, especially when it's multiple setups in the same house. So it's a really good question. And I just think that there's so many awesome options these days. And I think even when the new stuff comes out, you just find different ways to use the stuff that you already own. Rick Lewis is trying to connect a Roku to a composite-only CRT to stream old movies and maybe even try out old games and stuff. However, with the HDMI to composite adapter they bought, it just compresses to the CRT's aspect ratio. Any idea if there's a device so they could crop to the correct aspect ratio rather than squeezing the sides in? So I'm not sure what you mean by squeezing the sides in. So is it letterboxed at all sizes or on all sides? Um, is it putting it in a widescreen resolution and you're looking to stretch it out? Um, are there any switches on your converter box? Because I've seen some of them with, with different aspect ratio controls on there. But the best way to do something like that would be to find a device that could output 480p 4x3. And some still exist. Um, I use a Roku on, and an Amazon Fire Stick I've used on a widescreen CRT, but not a square CRT. So I would try that first just to see. And I might also try other converters. Now, there is some Xtron equipment out there that might be able to help. And I have one sitting right here that I haven't had a chance to do any kind of analysis on. So if you're not in a rush for this, maybe wait a couple weeks and I will be doing a live stream where I test it. If it doesn't work at all, maybe it'll be the most boring live stream ever, but it might be something that answers your questions and provides you a solution. But I don't really want to talk more about it because if I plug it in, what if I find out it's total crap and way more expensive than the solution you've already bought? So I'd like to respectfully just table my my thoughts on that until I really have a chance to dig in deep, but hopefully that'll be pretty soon. So if you're not in a rush, uh, just kind of stay tuned for that and see. But no matter what I find with this box, if you're able to find a device that could output 480p 4x3, uh, that would be a big help for all of this stuff. Or, or some kind of way to stretch it to full screen or anything like that. Um, that might help the downscaler device that you're using do something like that. But overall, kind of hold on for more info on this. Hopefully I'll find some cool things that add just a minimal amount of lag. Or maybe I'll just completely waste my time on the stream. I don't know. I enjoy nerding out, so I have no problem either way. Over on Kofi, David McKenna had a problem with their Acura HDMI box for the Dreamcast. The little blue light comes on and they get sound out of the headphone jack, but nothing out of the HDMI port. So the first thing I would do in a situation like that is standard computer troubleshooting steps. 
unplug everything and plug it all back in. And that includes possibly even popping the top off of the Acura box and reseating the pigtail on the inside. And when you're plugging it back in, make sure it's snug into the Dreamcast. I cannot tell you how many times that I've turned on my Dreamcast and gone, what the heck, what's wrong? And then I realized I just didn't push the port, the AV port in that last little centimeter. Sometimes they're a little snug and you, you got to get it in all the way. And if that's the case, if you take everything apart and put it back together and you're still not getting anything out of the HDMI port, do a visual inspection, make sure no pins look like they're broken, nothing on the cable looks like it's messed up, you know, look inside the end of the connectors just to make sure. And if you've done all of this, and I would try another HDMI cable just for the heck of it, that's almost surely not your problem, but you know, why not? That's an easy one. You know, even if you just borrow one out of another device in your house temporarily to give it a try. And at that point, if you're not able to get it working, then you're just going to have to contact the Behar brothers, but they're really great at support. So, you know, it's, it's the holidays, give them time to respond, but I don't think you would have a problem there. Um, at the very least, they might respond and, you know, give some more tips or anything like that. But other than basically unplugging it all and plugging it back in, that's really the only other thing you could do. Maybe it'll be a bad, bad pigtail. Maybe there's something on the board itself that went wrong. But overall, I think do some basic troubleshooting and then you're stuck just contacting the manufacturer. But good question. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you have wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And to be honest, I really like just scrolling through in real time as I did today and as I usually do with these. So any question you have, just ask wherever it is that you post in the newest Q&A post you find there. And if for whatever reason I don't answer your question, just re-ask in the next weeks. It's almost always the same thing when that happens. It's almost always that your question comes in after I've been done recording, but before the next one goes live. So it's always an honest mistake. I never delete anybody's questions or anything like that. So any questions you got, fire away. Um, thank you very much to everybody who supports in any way possible, because without you, none of these videos or anything would be able to happen without you. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.